Thanks, Pastor. It's a great joy to be able to be with you all this morning. And as Pastor Rick said, I'm Pastor Mark Mudge in a church in Guatemala City, Guatemala. So I'm grateful to be able to open God's Word with you. Let's read God's Word from Mark chapter 14. Let's read... Mark 14, let's read verses 32 to 42. Then we'll pray. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for his eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we we sit before you now as as a needy people. We need to know you. We need to be reminded of the gospel. We need to hear your word and be shepherded by you, by your truth and by your word. Lead us, Lord, to clean water and fresh pasture by your word. We need spiritual food and drink. Lord, we need you. We're a sinful people. And apart from you, in your gospel, and your salvation, we're lost. So once again, we come before you with our hands held out. Lord, please help us. Help us to know your word. Help us to know you by means of your word. Help us to apply your word. Please help us to understand your word. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the great blessing. Be able to come to this place on your day and to be able to hear your words. Help us to understand your words and this and what happened in Gethsemane. Amen. I like lookouts. I like to go to lookouts and I grew up in Florida and Florida doesn't have many good places to look out. It's flat or it's flat all over the place. But here in New York, there's lots of good lookouts. So we went to one lookout this week the walkway over the Hudson. 
And it was a good place to be able to look out and see Poughkeepsie, to see a good view of the Hudson, to see where the Roosevelt's used to live for a little while, vacation, see some sights and sounds of upstate New York. Above all, we get to see the Hudson when you walk over the walkway of the Hudson, right? It's a good lookout. Lookouts are good because you get to be able to see a different perspective. You get to see a long ways, and you get to see many different things in a better way. The best way to look at the Hudson is to go over the walkway over the Hudson, right? Well, today we want to see Calvary. We want to go to the go- see the gospel again. We want to think about what Christ has done and apply that to our lives. We want to look at Calvary. But sometimes the best way to look at Calvary is to go to a lookout and see it from a different perspective. Well, Jesus is going to take us to the Garden of Gethsemane here today. We're going to return to this story because from there we get a better view of Calvary and better understanding of what happens at Calvary. In many ways, the the epistles are like that. They take us to a different lookout to see better see Calvary and explain what happened at the cross of Calvary. But why do we want to go to Gethsemane today? Because we want to understand the cup of Calvary. So the title of this sermon is Gethsemane and the Cup of Calvary. What we're going to do is we're going to go and and Jesus is going to be our guide to take us to Gethsemane. We're going to look at two parts, two parts to this sermon. In verses 32 to 34, we're going to look at the sorrowful setting in Gethsemane. The sorrowful setting. And then in verses 35 and 36... We're going, to look at, we're going to hear Christ's prayer and consider the cup of Calvary. That's where we're going to end up today, verses 32 to 36. That's going to be our focus, really on this cup, the setting that leads up to the cup, and then what Jesus is praying about with this cup and what it means for us. Well, let's consider the, the book of Mark. Let's step back for a second and in and remember how we got here in the book of Mark to chapter 14. We're jumping in right in the middle of 14. We know, I know that you all are studying John. And you're going through a gospel of John. And you're in chapter 10, learning about the good shepherd, right? Who has other sheep, they're not of this fold. Well, in the book of Mark, it's divided up in three main parts. Chapters 1 to 8, we have Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And then in chapters 9 to 11, we have Jesus on the road to Calvary, where he's spending a lot of time focusing on discipling the disciples. And then in chapters 12 to 16, we have the last week of Jesus' life. So we're in this last section. So if you imagine, you know, Pastor Rick has a lot of books, right? You imagine three books on a shelf that are all a series of the Gospel of Mark. We got the first one, the second one, we've arrived at the third one. The third book in the series here of the Gospel of Mark. Of Mark. And it's focused on Jesus' last week. In chapter 14, when we get here, we see Jesus is at the Last Supper. Jesus at the Last Supper. Judas has gone out to betray him. He's it. Right now, at the, same, at the time where Jesus is in Gethsemane, Judas is out talking with the Pharisees, making plans to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus knows what Judas is doing. Jesus focuses in on the disciples in the Last Supper. And he, he transforms the Passover to be the Lord's Supper. 
which we celebrated today. And then they head out for Gethsemane. In verses 27 to 31, let's read those verses. On the way to Gethsemane, this is what happens. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written in the book of Zechariah, it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that tonight, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. And then we arrive here now at our text, Gethsemane. So if you remember the layout in Jerusalem, you got two big hills, the city on one hill and you got the Mount of Olives on the other. The city is where all the people are at, and Mount Olives is less people, less city. More. And near the base, this mountain, you got olive trees, a lot of olive trees. So it gives an important product to Israel, olive oil. And these olive trees are old trees, they're short trees, they're thick trees. You get a bunch of them together, you can kind of get a garden or a secluded place. They can kind of make a fence with all the olive trees, with all their branches, and it's blocked off. And if you know the way to get in, it can be like access to a park, a separated place. And Jesus is going there. He's going there to pray. And that's why we're following him. We want to hear him pray. Because when we hear his prayers, we better understand what happened at Calvary. So we imagine Jesus going in, and the other, he's got the, uh, the disciples with him. But he selects three to go in with him. Let's pick up at the, at the sorrowful setting in verses 32 to 34. Jesus has had this rebuke on the way, and the disciples didn't get it. Jesus tried to help them see something about their weakness and their need, but they didn't get it, right? They expressed pride. And so now they're going in to this, the Garden of Gethsemane. We see the sorrowful setting in verses 32 to 34. We read again, verse 32. Then he came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him and began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. So we come to, they come to the place we called Gethsemane. And I describe that place to you. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So they enter into the Gethsemane, this garden-like area, separated at night. And so he says to the majority of his disciples, sit here, more at the entrance to the Gethsemane. Sit here while I pray. And the implication is for them to pray too, Right? They have a responsibility as well to depend upon the Lord. Jesus and the disciples are going to be detested this night. And they need to use this means of grace. It's not like a spiritual recharging prayer. It's not like some sort of um, plug into the wall to get some spiritual power. No, they need this expression of dependence. They need to acknowledge 
in this worshipful way that they're dependent upon God. And they need to become more dependent on Him. They have too much pride to pass through this night, in this day, in this trial, this difficult time. And they don't realize their pride. And He's telling them, sit and pray. Stop and realize how much you need the grace of God. Dependence on Him. That's why He's telling them to pray. And so in verse 33, he took Peter, James, and John, and he goes farther into the Garden of Gethsemane with them. Jesus did this on various times. Remember in the transfiguration, when he goes up to the the mountain, he takes with him Peter, James, and John. When Jesus went to raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, he he took just Peter, James, and John to be able to go with him. Jesus has a purpose here to train them. Jesus has a purpose to separate himself with just a few. Because he's going to pour into them so that they can pour into others and help others. He's got a plan for the future. That he can do greater work of grace if he spends time with these few guys. And so that's what he's doing again. He's already thinking about us. He's already thinking about the future and his church. Because he prepares the apostles who are the foundation of the church. Who give us the word of God. Who write these gospels, write the epistles. And... And so he's already caring for his church here by taking three. By taking three. Each of them had already said that they would suffer with him in chapter 10. Christ sovereignly is giving these privilege to them. They're going to need to suffer more than they know, these three. But they have greater grace than they would they know. And so he begins to say to them, he, he, it begins to describe, Mark begins to describe in verse 33, something about Jesus. And that's what grips us about this story more than anything else. What Jesus' reaction. Jesus doesn't normally act this way. What says in verse 33, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. How many times in the John do you remember Jesus reacting this way? People try and kill Jesus. Jesus teaches, he gets opposition, huge crowds following him, huge crowds leaving him. When does Jesus react this way? This is an even stronger description than when when you guys are going to get to John 11, where, where Lazarus dies and Jesus will cry. But here's a stronger description of what happens. What is going on with Jesus? That's what we want to know. He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. This word for troubled is describing how a physically horrified person, distressed in mind and alarmed. The word for troubled is describing someone who's profoundly appalled, overwhelmed with sorrow, with distress. Albert Barton used the description of this illustration. We're going to imagine you've got to go to someone's wife and tell them their husband died. And so you got to go, Stephanie, we got news for Stephanie, right? Her husband's died, and we got to be the ones to tell her. We don't want to call her. We don't want to send a text message. We want to go over to her house. But we know that when we tell her, she's going to have this, first, a shock, a disbelief, this inability to react or know what to do in the, in the first moments, and then a great, deeply distressed sorrow coming in, right? That's the way Jesus is describing here. The first initial shock, this moment has arrived. He's here at the Garden of Gethsemane. All has been leading up to this point. 
All everything, all the ministry, his incarnation, all that he, um, he's come to obey and do, it's all lead up to this point. And all the gospels are leading up to this point, to what happens at the cross of Calvary. And all of history has been leading up to this point. All of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament here is leading up to this most important point in history. And he's at the precipice, the precipice of this cliff to jump off, right? This moment he knows been, that's been coming. And he begins to be troubled and deeply distressed. When we read in Psalm 22 about the sorrows of the Messiah, Jesus knows this time is coming. At Gethsemane, what's happening here is not a pre-atonement, not somehow this is part of the forgiveness of sins in what Jesus is doing here in his prayer, but rather it's part of his righteous life. It is part of his righteous life. He's come here to obey and depend upon the Father. To obey and depend upon the Father. To live part of his righteous life up to the point of giving his life here. Now in verse 34, we're still in the sorrowful setting. What does Jesus say to his disciples? And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. So he says something about himself to to Peter, James, and John, about his soul, his state, to an extreme level, even to the point of death, that he's he's almost ready to die here from this sorrow. And we ask, why? Why? What is he thinking? What is he doing? What What is it about this point that leads him? He's even seems more emotionally affected here than when he does in before the Pharisees and the judgment, before the cross, before they, there's no description like this as they nail him to the cross. What is happening here that is different? And he says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he gives him instruction. He is continue, he's expressing his sorrow. In Luke 22, verse 44, he says, And being in agony, he was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling upon the ground. His agony and his heaviness and his sorrow is huge at this point. Illustration from um, S. Lewis Johnson. S. Lewis Johnson said about this text, he said, there was a historical example in the 1500s of someone who was going to die in France in the reign of Henry IV. They're going to kill somebody, give them the death penalty. And the guy was like, I'm ready to die. And I'm even more brave than Jesus was. Jesus, look at how he was in the crying, and he referenced Jesus at this sorrow. And he went boldly to die and was executed. So we use that illustration to say, what's going on with Jesus? Other people have died. I'm sure I, if I were to get my head cut off, cut off or I'm going to get the death penalty, I'm going to be afraid, right? But other people get martyred and they don't, they're not afraid. They die for different causes and different reasons. That happens in every generation. There's martyrs. They don't act like Jesus act. What's going on here? What's going on here in this sorrowful setting? Stephen didn't act this way when the, when the stones came flying and hit him in the face and he died by the rocks being thrown at him. He didn't react this way. He prayed and he, to God the Father and saw Jesus at the right hand. 
Jesus is no mere martyr here. Something else is going on. Tell us, Lord, tell us what is going on. We see the sorrowful setting, and that makes us ask, what is going on? We want to know what's going on with Jesus, that he would be like this. And it's, we've seen the sorrowful setting now in verse 32 to 34. Let's close that. We've got questions now that need to be answered. And they're answered in verses 35 to 36, in what Jesus prays. That's what answers our questions about why the sorrowful setting. Now in verses 35 to 36, we hear Jesus' prayer. And we focus in on a cup, the cup of Calvary. is the center. If we understand that, we understand Gethsemane. If we understand that, we have a better view of Calvary. And we understand what happens in the gospel. So now verses 35 to 36. These verses say, he went a little farther, fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Okay, so here we are. We've, we've traveled to Gethsemane. The disciples had left at the, at the entrance of Gethsemane. We left Peter, and John, Peter, James, and John. They're about a stone's throw away. You see the, other, the, the house next door, right? They're about that far away, about as far away as you can throw a stone. They're supposed to be praying, and we know they're falling, being to fall asleep. Jesus is now here, and he's praying. And this, we've left the disciples behind, and we have this interaction now. We're listening to God the Son talk to God the Father. It's like we've been allowed into heaven to watch the interaction, listen to the words of the interaction of God the Father and God the Son. And we put our hands over our mouths and we listen to what what Jesus is saying. A holy place. We're on sacred ground here. We're here to be humble and listen. And so first we see in verse 35 what Jesus is doing. He went a little further, farther and fell on the ground. And the verb that's used to describe falling on the ground is like almost like a process. It's like a stumbling. Like someone with a weight on their back who can't walk anymore on it. As in, he has a process of falling to the ground. Maybe you've prayed like that sometimes, where you just couldn't wait to get to a room where nobody else was, and you close the door, and you just kind of fall on the ground, crying, and begin to pray before God. It's something like that we see in verse 35. And he begins to pray about a possibility. That's what he starts off with. A hypothetical scenario. If it were possible, if it were possible, the the hour might pass from him. What's he talking about? We're on the lookout. We'll look out and we see Calvary. And he's talking about that moment. He's talking about that hour. He says, if if it were possible, that that plan, that hour would pass away, would pass from him. Is there a way? Is there a way for this not to come? 
And what do we hear from God the Father? Silence. No, there's not another way. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other religion. There's no other way up the mountain to get to God. This is the only way. The only way for Christ to please the Father. The only way for sinners to be saved. This is the only way. There is no other way. You've not done that before, right? You see a hard thing to do, a hard scenario, a hard way to go. Maybe someone in the aisle at the supermarket you don't want to talk to. And you say, is there's another aisle to get to the, where the bread's at, right? Another way? And Jesus asks for the other way. And there's not. Isn't there another way to get this test done at the doctor? No, there's no other way. And, Jesus, and the Father, in his silence, by silence, says no. There is no other way. Jesus is already in John 12, 27 to 28. This isn't the first time that Jesus has thought about this. And in John, he says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus had predestined this hour. The Father had predestined this hour. The Spirit has predestined this hour before the world began. And Jesus, truly man and truly God, is now showing by his prayer that there's no conflict in the Trinity, but true godly submission. Truly, in a godly way, he ha- the Son is submitting to the will of the Father. And now we arrive at verse 36. This is the heart of where we want to get to. Because now we hear Jesus quoted. And what's the quote? What's the word for word, phrase by phrase? We want to hear everything Jesus has to say here. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. So he begins by addressing Abba, Father. He uses this term not in an irreverential way, but with all reverence and closeness to describe um, this respectful intimacy that a son would call, say to his father, expressing a simple and eager trust, an obedient surrender, an unconditional submission by saying, Abba, Father. And so he says, he, says, he says something true about the Father. All things are possible for you. All things are possible for you. You can do what you want. You can do what you want, Father. And Jesus is affirming that God, the Father can do what he wants. But he won't do all. God the Father um, is, is possible for him. But he won't do anything that's inconsistent with his character, with his will, with his holiness, with his word. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. He's holy. He's righteous. 
He's in control. And so he will do all things the right way, the perfect way, the holy way. And so he will not save sinner, the sinner who says, forgive me. He will save the sinner who is in Christ. He will save the sinner who trusts in his son. He only saves in a particular way, in a way that's consistent with his holiness. In a way that he, where he pours out justice and mercy. Only at Calvary will he save a sinner. And so, only in this way, he will not save in another way. So now we arrive at this cup. And Jesus says, take this cup away from me. We're here at Gethsemane to hear about the cup. In some ways, all other things are the setting up to this point. This is really what we're here for in this Sunday morning, to consider this cup. He says, take this cup away from me. And nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Let's consider the cup. Let's start with the cup. And then we'll go to what he says about what I will and what you will. Okay? The cup. Obviously, kids, we're not talking about a literal cup, right? There's not a cup in heaven that you can hold on to and go and see. We're talking about a symbol. A symbol. What does a symbol mean? Why does he talk about it in that way? Why does he talk about the cross of Calvary as a cup? What's it communicating? It's full of the Old Testament. Jesus' thinking and, and his words and his prayers are full of the Old Testament. That's what's going to inform us and tell us about this cup. And so, this cup is specific. He doesn't say a sea. He doesn't say a river. He doesn't say a lake. He says a cup to contain something specific that you can pick up and hold. The Psalm 11, we sang a song today about Psalm, using the, the themes and words in Psalm 11. Do you remember it? What was, Psalm, what was it about? What was it about? Tell me. Psalm 11, we sang it. That's right. God pouring out his judgment upon the wicked. Next time, pastor can't answer. You guys got to answer. Because that's like cheating. The <laughs> so pouring out his wicked. He, listen to a quote from Psalm 11. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. So now Psalm 75. Did you hear the cup in Psalm 11? We sang it too. Now Psalm 75. For, the hand of the, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is mixed red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs, or what's in the bottom, shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. You hear it again? A cup. What is it about? A cup of judgment, a cup of wrath, a cup of fury, a cup of anger. In Isaiah 51, it's the judgment of God is described as a cup of his fury. God's fury. 
Jesus' agony is not because of the, dr- the dread of the physical pain on the cross. Jesus is not there crying, weeping out, sweating drops of blood because he's going to get nails poured through his hands. Because he's going to hang there and, and it's going to be hard to breathe. Because they're going to break his legs with a hammer. Because he's going to get whipped and bleed to the point of almost dying. He's not crying about that stuff. Lots of Jews died that way. He is crying about something much more intense. It's much more important. The meaning behind what's going to happen is a much greater thing, a much worse suffering. On the cross of Calvary, there's levels of things that are happening. One thing is physical pain and death. Another is the pain of bearing sin. Jesus is going to bear sin. It's like to take the embarrassment and the shame. He's going to be naked there on that cross. Not like our pictures and descriptions. Most Jews died naked there. And he's going to be there, not just taking on pain and death, but bearing the, the pain of sin. Taking upon himself all the evil which his soul hates. But he's going to be abandoned as well. All this time, the father has looked upon him and said, my beloved son. But at that time, the father is going to turn away from him. And it's the only time Jesus doesn't refer to him and pray to him as a father. And when Jesus cries out on the cross, he says, my God, my God, in a separated way. He doesn't say father there. On the cross. He's been abandoned by the Father. He's been judged as guilty. Even though he's innocent. But what is the greatest of all those levels? There is another level greater. What is in the cup. The bearing of the wrath of God. More difficult than the others. God has stored up his wrath and his judgment. And he has put everyone, all of his judgment in a cup. This is a symbol to help us understand. He's put it all in a cup. You know, there's a finite, a limited amount in a cup, right? We took the Lord's Supper and you drank in a cup. Why? Why a cup? It communicates the wrath of God in a specific way. Think about the the fearfulness of this. God knows every sin that has ever occurred. Every thought, every word, every attitude, every action, in secret, in public, in the entire history of the world. And he has not forgotten a single one. He knows. He knows it all. Oh, there's people who do evil things in secret. And they think no one knows. They do their dirty deeds in the dark. We have done such things. Not just people out there. We have done such things, and we have thought in our foolishness that God doesn't notice. But God knows every single one. He uses the cup because the cup communicates. It's got a name on it. You know what the name is? Your name. It's got your name on it. You're supposed to drink it. 
In Jeremiah 25, it says, This cup is filled with the wine of my wrath. In Ezekiel 23, the cup of ruin and desolation. In Habakkuk 2.16, describing the wrath of God, the cup of the Lord's right hand. Jesus said he would give his life. In in Mark 10, he says he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. He's going to give his life in order to pay a price for many. The cup is... This um, is describing God's indignation. Do you know what indignation is? Indignation? It's like somebody being angry and you should be angry. You understand that? It's like um, if you were to go out the doors and you see, um, driving home, and you see a little kid getting hit by a drunk. Should you get mad at that? Or should you just go, you should just go by and pretend like you didn't see it? Somebody was drinking. Like somebody was drinking too much, and they hit a little kid. We should not go by like that. We should be, have indignation that should lead us to do righteous actions, right? God has this cup that has your name on it, and he has indignation, and it's good, it's right. He should be responding this way. He should put your name on it. It would be evil for him not to put your name on it. So Jesus here, thinking about this cup, saying, take this cup away from me. He looks at this cup, knowing it's a righteous thing, knowing it's a good thing, and he looks at it and he says, don't bring it near me. I don't want to, I don't deserve it. He doesn't deserve it. You've seen that through John. Perfection in all of his words, in all of his ways, in all of his attitudes. How worthy is Jesus? How worthy is Jesus? If anyone should say, take the cup away, shouldn't it be him? And so if we understand what this cup is, it is the pouring out of the wrath of God. Everyone in the history of the world will either drink this cup in hell, as Revelation 14 describes the cup of his indignation, the wrath of hell poured out forever. Everyone will either drink, you'll drink the cup, got, it has your name on it, in hell for all of eternity, or Jesus will drink your cup with your name on it in your place. But someone must drink the cup. Someone must drink the cup. Hell is for all of eternity because you will never stop drinking the cup. It is impossible to pay. You will pay forever. Drink forever. The fury of the wrath of God burning in hell. Or Jesus will drink this cup and because he is God, he can drink it and drink it down to the dregs the nastiness that's in the bottom, all the way to the bottom. But someone must drink the cup. Who will it be? Who will it be? You or Christ? You or Christ? We've gotten an understanding of this cup, a basic understanding of this cup. 
Let's look and stop and think about how Jesus responds now. He says, nevertheless, take away this cup from me. And Jesus stops and he says this, take away this cup from me. But then he says, nevertheless, here's the submission. Here's his obedience. He says, not what I will, but what you will. I'll do what you want. For Jesus not to pray this, for Jesus not to pray this would be sinful. For Jesus not to not to think any other way would show that he's not human. He is truly human. Truly he can be someone who can drink the cup in our place because he's truly human. And so for him to respond this way, if for him to respond in any other way apart from take this cup away from me, would show he's not human, but he is. And so he prays genuinely here, a human way, a godly way. Other, any other response would be sin. But yet he submits his, his will, resolved to obey, headed for the cross. And we remember Philippians 2.8, and he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. And he remembered John 4, where he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He is the great high priest who's going to take our hand and to be able to take us into the holy of holies where the blood is sprinkled over the altar, where the represents the presence of God. To opens who, who will rip the veil. And like Spurgeon said, to rip it and to throw it away. Not to rip it and sew it up again. Not to rip it and, and mend it again. But he's going to rip the veil, the way into the Holy of Holies, to give access to the presence of God. And so he takes his, his work of high priest, taking our hand, to be able to take the hand of the Father as it will and reconcile us, be a mediator, to allow us to be reconciled, forgiven. And as, as, as we've, uh, you've, I'm sure you've heard before, the, the justice of God and the mercy of God would kiss at the cross. And so Jesus submitting himself here, obeying here, is an expression of how it pleased the Lord, pleased the Father to bruise him and put him to grief. This is an expression of the conflict of God's decree and desire. The, con- the ex- existence of them both, where God has decreed that the cross would happen. And yet in his truly man and truly God, God the Son, in some sense, does not desire. You've all done things like that. You have said, in the short term, I don't want to go to the dentist. In the long term, I want to go to the dentist. You understand? And so God, Jesus, looking into the long term, even though he does not desire, he decrees this is best. This is perfect. This is the way to glorify the Father. This is the way to save sinners. The highest expression of submission is this when you don't want to do it and you do it. 
And so we see his perfect, righteous life. What obedience our Savior has. What obedience our Savior has. And so Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will. And he leaves Gethsemane. When the soldiers come, he has his face set like flint. He has the trust in the Father, and he does not waver. He does not come to his point of stumbling again. The Father has sustained him in these prayers and has heard him. And he goes boldly before the court of the Pharisees and hypocrites. And he stands boldly and silently because he knows he stands officially and and legally guilty in your place. And he doesn't speak because he knows officially he's guilty. Taking the place of sinners. And he goes to Calvary and he submits himself to being nailed and submits himself to suffering these six hours on the cross. And he submits himself to the pouring out and the drinking of the cup to bear the wrath of God for all those who would repent and believe. And he, he takes in all the saints of the Old Testament and the saints of the New to the point, even to the point of 2021. And he, and he looks at David. And David, who, King David, who committed adultery and murdered Uriah and lied and gets Uriah drunk and steals his wife and did not die and didn't go to hell. Jesus pours all the fury that David deserved. That cup says King David. And all the fury and judgment that David deserved, Jesus drinks and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he bears the judgment. But not only does he bear the judgment, he gives the righteous life. All the perfect obedience, all the obedience that he gives, even to the submitting in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the prayer, he gives all that righteousness to David. David didn't get there because he wrote Psalms. David didn't get there because he's the best of the kings. David didn't get there. And David writes, blessed is the man whose sins have been forgiven. And he understands. Only here at Calvary can justice and forgiveness meet. Someone said, I know Pastor Marcos will cry. <laughs> let's continue to focus now on the applications. Let's put, these, let's put the exposition, let's close that and put that to the side now. We've gone through the verses... And we've gone to, to Gethsemane. And from Gethsemane, we can see better Calvary. We've seen a sorrowful setting. Now we understand why the sorrowful setting. These are the great themes of why the world exists. And we see the point of the gospel. We see and understand by this cup, specific judgment and specific atonement. We've seen from understanding this cup, Great wrath and judgment and great mercy and love that come together. 
Now we consider how to apply this. How to apply this now. Now we're in Wawarsing, 2021. Come back from our, our journey to the Garden of Gethsemane. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you? First off, we consider God. What does it teach us about God? We've gone to a holy place and heard holy words from God the Father to God, God the Son to God the Father. Doesn't it lead us to worship God? Look at Christ, who would give his life. What love. Look at the Father, what justice, that he would know every single sin and give justice, justice, justice for every word and every thought and every evil thing. He knows it all. And he says, don't worry, my child. I will judge every sin that has ever occurred. And we worship him when we consider our God. Another application. Another application. Think about yourself. It's my cup. It's got my name on it. It says Mark Mudge. It says your name on it. It says Keith Jones, Lee Rusi, Eric Bennett. It says your name on it. And you... I like to say I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, right? But I'll tell you the future. If you're not a Christian, you will drink this cup in hell. Or you have the mercy offered to you now. And you must repent and believe. You must admit that it's my cup. Apart from admitting that my name is on it, that I deserve this cup, I deserve to drink this cup, you cannot enjoy, you, Christ will not take it in your place. You must admit, you can't deny it. You can't say, no, that's not my name. That's not for me. That's for LGP, LGD, G, whatever, the, the alphabet soup. <laughs> alphabet soup for homosexuality or whatever. It's for them. If you don't say, if you don't admit that it's your cup in a specific way, you don't believe what Jesus did on the cross. You can't have Jesus. You can't have Jesus if you don't admit that this is my, my cup. So another application. First, admit it, then you must repent and believe that for my specific sins, in that specific cup, Jesus has done what is necessary to save my soul to pay for my specific sins, past, present, and future. And then you can say, as you participate in the Lord's Supper, and as you take a cup to your lips each and every week, that you can take it and drink. And remember, He drank my cup, and I drank this cup to remember that He drank mine. And He is not just a Savior, He is my Savior. And I repent and believe the gospel again and again and again. Another application. We think about God. We think about ourselves. We think about our name on the cup. We apply it by repenting and believing the gospel. Another application. Look at all the pride and prayer in this text. As a sermon for another day. Maybe another visit. But look at all the prayer and the disciples not praying. And Jesus praying. 
well, I would not be a faithful pastor if I didn't say, well, one application is you should pray. <laughs> you should pray. You should follow Jesus' righteous life here. And learn what the disciples didn't learn. You're going to go through difficult times. And you need to be praying on a regular basis to express your dependence. Look, at Jesus does this at the greatest point of history before the cross, and he's truly God, true and truly man, and you're just truly man, then shouldn't you pray? Shouldn't you be faithful to pray? And there's, there's more blessings to learn at the other time about Christ's uh, intercession for us here. Another application. Look at how Jesus shepherds and cares. Look at how he cares for the disciples. We saw that in the sorrowful setting, right? We did, it's not the main point. The main point is the cup. But look at all that encouragement and love. Look at how he takes the disciples, Peter, James, and John. And why does he do it? He's discipling them specifically, so he's preparing them in order to pass on and be gracious to others. And even now, you're being served because he helped them. He helped them grow. He taught them. He prepared them to serve. And even now, remember the book, the Gospel of Mark is, is probably from a result of Peter's influence in Mark's life. That even now, you're being served. Kind, you're kindly, Jesus is shepherding you by giving you this book and this story and these words. And Jesus does that in our lives. The same way he kindly taught them to pray. He's doing that now in this sermon. He's a shepherding you to teach you. And so we learn something else about him. So let's conclude with the last application. What joy. What joy. We will suffer. We will suffer sickness. We will suffer cancer. In 100 years, nobody will be here. Even the youngest babies will be gone. And we'll suffer, we'll suffer persecution. We'll suffer hatred. We'll suffer difficulty. We'll have times of need, pain in a hospital bed. But what joy, this, this cup, knowing that Jesus took this cup. What joy that cannot be taken away. What helpfulness, what, what encouragement in the Christian life. And don't we remember like Paul's words in Romans 8 when he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, if God took the cup for us, who can be against us? If he didn't spare his own son but delivered us him up for us all, how shall we not with him also free, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Shouldn't we be having enjoy and encouragement in all of life? If he drank the cup in our place, who can bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. He drank our cup, gave us his righteousness. Who can condemn? It's Christ who died and is furthermore is also risen, even to the right hand of God, and makes intercession for us. He pleads his blood in our case. And says, forgiven, 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 like we sang. What can separate us from the love of Christ? He drank the cup. All tribulation, all distress, all persecution, all famine, all nakedness, all peril, all sword. Like it's written, we're counted for your sake. We are killed all day long. We're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. He drank the cup. He drank the cup. And so what is to die by cancer? What is it to 
suffer in this life and have your family hate you. He drank the cup. Shoe fly, don't bother me. <laughs> he drank the cup. We may suffer, and I'm not meaning to um, diminish your suffering. I mean to say, yes, it is, it is real and it's hard. But the real suffering, Jesus drank the cup. And so we can suffer in joy, knowing he's with us. So what have we done today? We've gone to Gethsemane. This lookout. Why do we go to this lookout? Because from there, we can see an even more beautiful place. And we, learn, and we can see Calvary. Because it's a good lookout to see Calvary. To see the gospel. Praise Christ. Because he drinks the cup for all those who repent to believe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that in our sin, in all, in all our tears, and all our worship, we do not truly and completely understand the depth of what we've read. We've, tr we've tried, Lord, but we confess these things are more profound than how I've been able to preach, and greater and better. They taste better, and they're better for us than we know. But with all our hearts now, we worship you and pray, please help us to continue to grow in our worship and understanding of you. Lord, you are a great Savior. We are sinners. We thank you for saving us and changing us to be your children. Please receive our worship now. And we thank you how Christ intercedes now. And your, our prayers are accepted now, corporately. In your presence, Father, because of what Jesus has done to drink the cup in our place. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you. Amen.